Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The seventh longest running play in Broadway history is A Chorus Line. It begins in unforgettable fashion. You are plunged as a member of the audience into a phantasmagorical scene as the curtain opens and directions are shouted behind you. One, two, three, again, one. And you realize that you're looking at an audition and the people on the stage are straining every fiber and sinew of their being trying to do the right thing. And the more it goes on, the more they're sweating and the more they're trying and the more the person behind you that you realize is the director is yelling. And on and on it goes and it gets harder and harder and more elaborate and more sophisticated. And you realize that you're watching people trying to make it as a member of a chorus line on Broadway to be able to say, Mom, I finally got to be a person who was in a Broadway play. Their whole lives devoted to that endeavor. But at the end of this scene, with all these flashing lights and all this noise and all this dancing and all this fantasia, the camera spotlights down to one member of the cast who comes all the way out to the front of the stage all by himself. And he sings a solo, and it goes like this. Who am I anyway? Am I my resume? Which is a picture of a person I don't know. What does he want from me? Who should I try to be? And all these people all around, and here we go. I need this job, oh God. I need this show. You, uh, you, don't, you don't forget it. I saw it in the 70s as a teenager. It stays with you. It's a haunting song. Who am I anyway? Am I my resume that is a picture of a person I don't know? Well, that's the question this morning, brothers and sisters. Who are we anyway? Really? Who are we? Not the mass that we put on or the roles that we portray to other people, but when we're fretting about whatever really causes us to fret at 2 o'clock in the morning and watching the spider build a small cobweb in the corner of our bedroom, where do we live and move and have our being? That's the question. And let me press it in terms of its importance. In a Newsweek cover story in 1983 about the census called A Portrait of America, they spoke about all the statistics about this country in the census that came out in the early 80s, which included our arches, which I didn't know anything about. Did you know that 2.6 million Americans have flat or fallen arches? I didn't. The article went on to say that they can expound these statisticians on life and its quality, on death and its causes. They can analyze sex and birth and divorce and income, crime and eating habits. As a result, concluded the article, America knows more about itself than ever before. In 1983, they said that. Even more true now. But the article concluded this way. That may be true, yet people are still confused about who they are and the roles they're called to fill. 
Could it be, said the article, that in the thousands of questions, the census takers had overlooked the most important ones? Yes, exactly. One of my favorite stories about human identity comes from Peter Sellers, who spent his entire acting life acting all sorts of other people to the extent that, with Inspector Clouseau and all the others, he wasn't entirely sure on various days who he was. The biographer Peter Evans in his book about Sellers called The Mask Behind the Mask. How's that for a book title? My favorite story in the book is about one prospective autograph seeker who comes up to Sellers on the side of his set when there's a break one day, looks at Peter Sellers and says, are you Peter Sellers? Sellers answered briskly, not today, and walked off. And there isn't a person here who can't relate to that. Now, as I submit, that's a question for us as human beings, as we live and move and have our being. I submit it's also a question for Jesus. It's also a question for Jesus because of his humanity and because the book of Hebrews reminds us, to quote chapter 4 and verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. And so as it is a question for us, it was also a question for our Lord. And that brings us to today's text and to the baptism of Jesus, which I'd be grateful if you turn with me to. It's in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. And as you turn to it, let me remind you as we begin of the context in the life of Jesus where this occurs. Since he's the most famous person in history, we tend to forget that at this point, in the history of the human race, at this precise point in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is actually a person of relative obscurity. We know quite a bit about his birth and next to nothing about the rest of his life except for one story when he's about 12 or 13. You may remember it when his parents and his extended family are in this long sort of caravan and his parents lose track of him and eventually find him in the temple debating with the rabbis. It's a very strange story when he's about 12 or 13. But essentially, apart from that, in 30 years of living on earth, nobody really knows much about him. But that's all going to change from this point forward. This is the launch of his public ministry. From here forward for the next three years, he will be on public display every minute of every day, every facet of his being. And when you go out on a stage as those chorus line prospective choruslers did, when you go out into the center of human history in a public ministry like Jesus did, the most important thing is on what are you going to base it? And you need to understand how critical this question is for our Lord of who is he? as he begins his public ministry. No more obscurity after this. No more relative questions and hiding after this. No, it's all questions all the time. It makes me think of the scene in um, Jesus Christ Superstar, for those of you who are movie fans, and it's also in the play, what's the buzz, tell me what's happening, and you have all these hands coming upon Jesus in the movie, and they're all trying to get Jesus to do something to fit their agenda because Jesus is so significant and so important and everybody wants a piece of this guy. Well, before this scene, that wasn't the case. Every moment after this scene, it was the case. All the time, every time, no matter what the time. So we find ourselves at the pivotal point in the life of our Lord. Now, let me answer my own question. 
Let me give you two false answers that are in this passage, and let me give you the correct answer. First of all, who Jesus is not, and also, brothers and sisters, who we are not. And these are serious temptations. They were serious temptations for Jesus. They're also serious temptations for us. Look at your text and think for a second about where we are and what's being said and what's going on. Here comes this figure of John the Baptist. You remember him. So great a preacher was he that in one of the Gospels it says that the whole city was out there listening to him. And Jesus says about him in Matthew 11, no one born of woman is greater than he. And here comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says two things about our Lord and it's very important that we notice them both as Kendall tries to turn to the right page in his Bible. The first is what Jesus does. Is Jesus going to define himself based on what he does? And let's not miss the significance of what he does according to John. Look at your text. It's at the end of verse 16. Do you see where I am? Here comes John, his cousin. No one greater than he has been born of woman, and he, this great figure, everybody in the city's out there to listen to him, and it says about our Lord, he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now we need to pause. That word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo in Greek means to plunge into a vat of dye. When you had a piece of clothing in the ancient Near East in Jesus' time and you wanted to color it, say, yellow or the most valuable color, which was hardly ever available, purple, you would, you would take a vat of dye and then you would put yellow dye or purple dye into the vat of dye and then you would take the piece of clothing and you would plunge it in and then you would pull it out. And that word for plunge into a vat is the word baptizo. So here comes this guy who's going to do what? He's going to plunge people into the spirit of the living God. You remember the spirit of God, the one that hovered over the face of the waters when there was nothing. And God created something out of nothing. But there was a point when there was nothing except God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's going to plunge people into that power all the time. And oh yes, don't miss the other thing, fire. Not just plunge him into a vat of Holy Spirit, as powerful and significant and important as that is, but he's going to plunge him into fire. Later in Luke 12, for those of you taking notes, it's in verse 49, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Because you can't stay neutral with this guy. He's a fiery figure in every sense of what that means. People either go toward him or away from him, but nobody stays neutral with him. He's a fiery figure. He's a powerful figure. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. If ever anybody could define himself based on what he does, it's this. And don't underestimate the temptation of this. You know what I'm talking about. The awkward moment at the dinner party. The person doesn't know you very well. It's all small talk. And then comes the moment, and they look at you, or you look at them, and you say, right, Oh, what do you do? Right? That's what people do. They ask that question, especially Americans, because we're a pragmatic nation, right? Horatio Alger, I brought myself up by my bootstraps, right? So it's all about us. And we go to McDonald's, and we do it ourselves, and we build things, and we make things, and we fix things. So it's about what you do, right? No. No human beings is not to be defined just based on what we do. We're more than that. We've always been more than that. It has to be more than that. 
But don't underestimate the temptation Jesus has to define himself based on what he's called to do. John summarizes it magnificently. Second, it's not just not what you do. And this second one is very dangerous and very insidious and equally significant. It's who he is in relation to other people and what they say about him. It's not just that John says what he does. It's that John says who John is in relationship to Jesus. Did you notice that? He says, and this is no, remember, no one born of woman is greater than he. He said, this guy who's coming is so significant in comparison to me, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Back in a time in the world in the ancient Near East when people didn't wear shoes and feet were the dirtiest part of the body and the most undignified part of the body, which is why in John 13, in the scene of the foot washing, when, when Peter is asked by Jesus, Can I, I'm going to wash your feet, and Peter says, not on your life. If you remember, don't touch me there. I don't want you to touch me anywhere, but especially not there. Right? And John says, I am so small in comparison to his significance that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie a sandal that's attached to the dirtiest part of his body in a culture where things were very, very dirty, especially down there. Which means what? It means it's the sidelong glance. Oh, you remember the sidelong glance, right? It's there in high school. Mom, all the people have bigger backpacks than me. They've got better lunches than me. They've got better sports paraphernalia than me. And it doesn't end in high school. Hello, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest of them all? Right? People's egos don't disappear in high school. We just play the same game in a different way, right? The Joneses down the street have better grass, nicer cars. The guy in the office has a better office. So we're going to define ourselves through comparisonitis. And I said at the early service, and Trevor will appreciate this because Chris agreed with it, if we had time, we could go to a clergy conference. Don't think that we don't have the same problem everybody else has. Clergy are horrible at comparisonitis. It's terrible. How many people do you have at worship? We all, we all do the sidelong glance. It's a tremendous temptation. And here's this incredibly towering figure, John the Baptist, saying, look at who this is, my cousin. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. So is Jesus supposed to define himself looking out at what he does? No. Is he supposed to define himself looking along the, 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 the endless, and it is endless, there's always somebody else, one more person to define, define yourself in relation to. The endless comparisonitis of John and who John is in relation to him and what John says about him and what other people say about us. And oh my gosh, in the age of social media, can you believe how significant that is? No. Those are two false answers. You all with me? Not what we do. Not who we are in relation to other people or what other people say about us. Not out in doing, not alongside in comparisonitis and the sidelong glance. Okay, if that's the wrong answer, what's the right answer? It's in your text. You already know it, but you need to think about it for a second. This feast of the baptism of Jesus is set aside with terrible significance by the church every year for a reason. You already know what the voice says, right? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So big deal, right? Jesus already knew that. It was true before today. It's true after today. We say it in the creed. God of God, very God of very God, incarnate, right, of the flesh of the Virgin Mary, his mother. For us and for our salvation, he became man, right, yada, 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 right? It's true. 
So the voice is actually saying something Jesus already knows. What in the world is going on? You know the answer to this. Every parent, every good teacher knows the answer to this. At least half of life is telling people the reality of what's already true about them. Because we need to be reminded. Have you noticed? You matter, says your parents. Was it true before? Yeah. Is it going to be true next day? Yeah. Does, does it matter when your parents say you matter? Right? I love you. Yeah, well, that was true yesterday. No, no, but it's, it's important to learn to say it. Why is it so important now? Because that's the definition of who Jesus is. The son of the father, the whole of his ministry is anchored in the reality of sonship. Always in the reality of sonship. So that the very last act he has on earth, father into your hands, I commit my spirit, is an act out of his identity as the son of the father. He is who God says he is. He is who he is in relation to God. It is the vertical look and the vertical voice above all. And please don't miss this. What's the scene immediately after the baptism of Jesus in the Gospels? Oh, oh, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And what is the heart of the temptation of Satan? Oh, it's power and, you know, all this other... That's actually a superficial look at it. It is those things. But have you really thought about the questions in relation to what we're talking about this morning? Every single question goes like this. If you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do that. In other words, he's seeking to dislodge Jesus from his identity as the Son of the Father at the very outset of his ministry. Because if Jesus is dislodged from that, at that point, everything after that, it's wrong. The bottom button of the coat is off, and you can keep on buttoning for the rest of your life, and it's off. If the bottom button's wrong, it's all out of alignment. The very place where Satan tries to put his finger is the very place where the voice of the Father starts Jesus. So we are not what we do. We are not who we are in relation to others and what others say about us. We are who God says We are. We are children of God by creation, and we are adopted children of God by grace and through the blood of Christ. Y'all with me so far? Two false answers, one true answer. All right, now let me go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. You thought you were off the hook. No such luck. Let me say a word about the application of this to us in our current cultural moment for just a second. Because I want to make sure that you're aware of this. If you take this idea seriously, that human beings are who they are because of the fact that they're made in the image of God and they're creatures of God and they are who they are because of what God has done for them and who God says they are, then part of what it means to live as a Christian is to take the dignity of every human being in every situation with utmost seriousness. And you and I in the West at the beginning of the 21st century are in a culture which is utterly undermining the human identity of people before birth, at the beginning of life, and people near the end of life. Both ends, the pre-born and the nearly dead, if you want two categories. Now let me sharpen it up just so that we all stay together. I lived in Canada for two years. I like to remind Americans there's actually another country up there. You you, you actually go to it. You can cross the border. I promise it's there. You can check it out. 
Most Americans don't even pay any attention to it ever. They, they sort of pretend it doesn't exist. It's big. It's our neighbor. But a lot of times things that happen in Canada are significant for us. A number of years ago now, to my great horror, Canada as a nation legalized euthanasia, assisted suicide at a national level. You need to know that. George Weigel, a Roman Catholic priest, writing a number of years ago about his experience in a parish not long after that decision, says something quite important and quite remarkable. Listen to this. This past summer, he says, three elderly members of my summer parish in rural Quebec received a diagnosis of cancer at the local hospital, which is a small-town facility about an hour's drive from Cosmopolitan, Ottawa. So everybody with me? We're in a Roman Catholic parish about an hour from Ottawa in Canada, and this is a Roman Catholic priest. He's got three older prisoners, and they all got the cancer diagnosis, right? The C word, oh no. After the diagnosis was delivered as the parish priest, he found out from each of these three, the first question the doctor asked into the room, the moment he came to the door, was what? Are you ready? Do you wish to be euthanized? The first question. Weigel writes this, that is what the new Canadian euthanasia regime has accomplished in the matter of a few months. It has put euthanasia at the top of the menu of options proposed to the gravely ill. And if we had time, we could go into detail. These are highly educated, highly gifted people with lots to offer the world with families, and in many cases, marriages. But they can no longer do very much, so let's just get rid of them. And in case you're feeling really righteous, because that's Canada north of the border, can I just remind you of what's going on in our country? Oh yeah, you remember our country. When I got out of seminary in 87, there were no states in America where euthanasia was legalized. Oregon was the first in 1994. The last time I researched this topic in some detail, in the mid-2010s, there were five states or jurisdictions which legalized euthanasia. I did the work this week. Are you ready? Do you know how many there are? Eleven. There are 11 states and jurisdictions where you can get somebody to kill you if you pay them and do it according to the written law. And in Colorado, you're not even allowed to say on the death certificate that you did it that way. They actually wrote a lie into the language of the Colorado state law. It doesn't say you took your own life with help because we wouldn't want that. So they do a little finagle and work around. The trend is not good. One to five to 11, hello. You're in a culture where the dignity of people is getting lost and where people are being treated based on what they can contribute only. And if they can't contribute anything, and if they don't have any sidelong comparison to offer, if they're in Alzheimer's ward, I mean, what does an Alzheimer's patient have to offer the world? Yes, but there's still a creature created in the image of God with a whole legacy, in many cases a family and a memory. And there has to be a way that we treat them with dignity and grace, however difficult that is. But as a society, we're just not doing that. We're just putting them off to the side. Part of what it means to live as a Christian in the 21st century in the light of a text like this is, you need to find ways to say to elected officials, this is not okay. It's not okay to have a society which is increasingly allowing people to legally kill themselves when they decide they have nothing to offer anymore and they're not really worth living for. And that's what's happening. 
Let me say something about you, where you live and move and have your being. That was society. This is you. In your own daily life, we could talk about social media and, oh, my gosh, how much time do you have? I mean, do you know the whole world of social media is based on exactly this sidelong glance, right? It's all about retweets and likes. So you could do a sermon on, I am how many times I've been retweeted, and I am how many times I got liked on Facebook. And the whole industry of the social media world is programmed to make sure that you define yourself based on how many times you've been retweeted or re-liked, and you make sure to check how many times you've been retweeted and liked all during the day. That's not a human existence that means very much. But there's more, and we've got to understand this. You are in a time when a revolution has occurred, economically and technologically. This is the first time in human history where this has been true. You need to know this. What is the most valuable commodity in the world today? It's a really interesting question. Gold, silver, frankincense, myrrh. All good answers, not right. You know what it is? It's your attention. Your attention. We have an entire corporate and technological apparatus which has been constructed with one purpose and one purpose only. These corporations and this technology is vying as never before to get you to pay attention to what they want you to focus on. Tim Wu has written a book even more relevant today than when it first appeared in 2016. Here's the title. The Attention Merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. There's a nice low-key book title. In a recent interview, Wu said this, the business model is simple, gather a crowd or find a captive audience and then basically sell access to that. The long-term effects of this business model are interesting. It used to be fairly limited, but now it's everywhere. The attention industry needs people who are in a distracted state, who are perpetually distractible and thus open to advertising. And so it has a strong influence on the content of the media, which becomes increasingly attention-seeking and clickbaity. Yes, you heard it here first from the pulpit, an adjective, clickbaity. He said it, I didn't for want of a better term, and ultimately affects us because of the kind of media you're exposed to. These algorithms are devoted to figuring out what you want to like and then get you to like it along with their advertisement on the side of the page. It is the commodification of human attention. Never happened before. You think dealing with a sidelong glance was tough when you and I were growing up. Try it now where algorithms are getting a sense of what you like and what you don't like every single moment of every day. This is dangerous ground. We've got to be careful about social media. We've got to be careful about technology, how we use it. We have to use it judiciously. We have to use it wisely. We have to use it carefully. Are you all with me? All right. Last little bit to ask you about this whole thing of who are you anyway. It seems to me that this has enormous significance in terms of our relationships. So let me ask it this way. Are you a person in your life and in your relationships with your family, your coworkers, and so on, who realizes how much power you have for the people around you to give them a sense of the dignity that they don't know that they have? This is very important. Every single person you interact with has incredible value and worth and dignity. But you're in a society that doesn't act like that. 
Which means what? It means this. It means looking people in the eye. It means learning their names. So that if you're at a restaurant like I was the other day, and a guy comes to the table, he's just a table server, so who cares? He's a cog in a restaurant machine. Ta-da. No, no, he's not. He's a person created in the image of God. So I say, hi, what's your name? Stephen, he says. So I say, how do you spell that? He says, S-T-E-V-E-N. See, in Paris Mystery, you learn to ask how people spell their names because God help you if you send them a note or say it wrong, you know, when you go to their house or write them an email or something. Heaven help you. And I said, I looked him straight in the eye and I said, oh, that must have been tough. He said, in high school, you have no idea. Now, what's that? It's just a quip. Who cares? No, no, no. It's taking him seriously as a person. I go by Kendall, you get two chances to call me Ken, and then I don't answer anymore. I just don't. And all my friends know that if anybody had publicly addresses me as Ken, they know next to nothing about me. Right? There's all kinds of ways that you can treat people with dignity and grace and show them that they're worth, they're worth a lot to God. So here's a way to ask the question very, um, I think, challengingly, but also importantly. Is there anybody in your life who's important and visible to God, but not important and invisible to you? That's a really searching question. But it's a really important question because all of us have people in our lives, our families, our offices, or wherever, where there's somebody there with human worth and dignity, some member of the staff, and we're not noticing them. And we're not saying hello to them, we're not looking them in the eye, and we're not treating them with the dignity that we're worth. And oh, by the way, can I say something about church? Why are you here? Well, I'm here because I come to church, right? Because my mother said I had to come, or my grandmother said I have to come. Here's a newsflash. You don't come to church. You know that, right, as a Christian? That's not why you're here. You come to worship, to be sent out to be the church. That's what a Christian does every Sunday. You don't come to church. You come to worship to be sent out to be the church. In other words, every Sunday is reality therapy. You are reminded of whose you are and who you are. So the prayer at the end of Eucharist says, send us out to do the work you have given us to do as what? As what we just prayed in the previous part of that prayer, which is as children of God. Who knew? One more story, then we're done. I love stories about Luther for lots of reasons, and there are lots of interesting stories about Luther, but one of the more unusual things about Luther is that Luther regularly had encounters with the satanic. Satan plays a big role in his theology, it plays a big role in his life, and if you know his hymnody well, you may know, for example, in something like A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that Satan actually gets a whole verse basically devoted to him. One little word shall fell him says that great hymn. And that word hymn is specifically to Satan. Well, one of his most famous encounters with Satan happened one day where it's not clear entirely what happened, whether it was a daydream or a phantasm or whether actually in some way Satan actually appeared to him. But what matters is it was a real satanic encounter. So vivid was it that Luther says that he threw an ink blot at Satan which missed him and it hit the wall. And you can still go to his study in Germany, you can see the ink blot on the wall. But here's the important part of the story, which came out later. We weren't in the room. Whether it was a phant phantasm or whether it was a real appearance of Satan doesn't matter. Satan came to him and said, what? You don't matter. That's Satan's full-time job. You know that, right? Satan is supposed to say every day, in as many ways as he can think of, you have nothing to offer God. You're a sinner. You're hopeless. 
You can't possibly think you have anything to offer the Lord God of heaven and earth. As long as he can keep you dislodged from your identity and confidence as a child of God, you're not going to do anything significant for the kingdom. The whole book of Hebrews is written to a community like that. The writer says, strengthen your weak knees. Why does the writer of Hebrews say that? Because the whole community is sitting there with their knees knocking together. Why? Because Satan has convinced them they've got nothing to offer the world. So here comes Satan to Luther, and as Luther tells the story later, he just froze. And here's the thing about these kind of stories. I say this to people all the time. You know, it's, it's too late to blow the dust off the family Bible and go home and figure out what to say. If Satan's right there, you have to answer. You can't, you, it's either in you to come out of you or it's not there. You don't have time to look it up. And Luther, as he told the story later, said, he just instinctively did this. He said, I am the baptized. I am the baptized. And Satan disappeared. What did he do? He said, I am under the water of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am who God says that I am. You can't have me. And Satan disappeared. I am the baptized. You're getting launched into a whole new year. It's a time for New Year's resolutions. It's a time for new starts. I don't believe it's 2022 either, but here we are. How we got here is a marvel. What we're going through is crazy. I know all that. But we do have to stop and ask the question at the beginning of the year at the baptism of Jesus. What is our perspective as Christians going to be as we go into the year? And it's got to be this, brothers and sisters. It's got to be this. We're not going to base it on what we do, and we're not going to base it on the sidelong glance. We're going to start every day, and we're going to start the whole year by knowing whose we are and who God says we are. It was critically important for Jesus. It's critically important for us. In Jesus' name, amen.